Hey, welcome to the Backyard Professor videos. I'm going to give you the answer to what Mormonism is hiding from you right here up front right now. I've written it down, and then you'll know what the video's about, and then I will spend the remainder of the time in showing you the evidence for why this is the case. The churches view that their teachings are inspired and are therefore by revelation, and the, with the implication that, of course, then this means that their teachings are higher, more noble, more accurate, true teachings than the world's teachings. Because what the world presents to us is the philosophy of men mingled with scripture. And so we need to more or less believe in what the Mormon prophets and apostles teach by implication because it's more true, it's higher, it's more accurate than what the world teaches. This split, this dichotomy between our inspired teachings and the philosophy of men mingled with scripture is entirely false. The Mormonism does not want you to know is that the scripture itself is the philosophy of men, that is, the authors who wrote those scriptures, and it too is mingled with other scripture, Nephi using Isaiah, uh, third Nephi using the Sermon on the Mount from the New Testament, etc. It's a false choice that Mormonism presents to us with the idea that we must choose either their teachings or the world's philosophy. The Mormon-controlled narrative is not accurate, it's not actually very realistic at all, since all of the writings of all books, articles, monographs, whatever, are the philosophy of men. They have a viewpoint, they have something they want to share with you based on that particular author's experience, right? Or of that author's wisdom. Mormonism attempting to cast doubt in any other wisdom than its own, is a brainwashing. And we're just not obligated to believe that at all. And I can prove this using the Book of Mormon, the most correct book on the planet, according to Joseph Smith. So this is what Mormonism does not want you to know. Now, one statement of Joseph Smith that I want to bring in here that is very important in relation to this is, he said, if a man could gaze into heaven for just five minutes, you would know more than you would by reading all that has ever been written on that subject. And he did not exclude the scripture in that either. So, the idea here is, my own experience trumps everything else, whether it's spoken or written. My experience gives the reality as it is to me, yours, to you. Not someone else's interpretation of their experience and their reality as objective truth, because it never is, including all of those authors of the scripture. So 
This video is about the fact that Mormonism is hiding, one, their narrative is false, there is no such dichotomy, and two, that even their own views are the philosophy of men mingled with scripture. And I have a sensational book by Grant Hardy, Understanding the Book of Mormon, that he wrote back in 2011. Now his intent is to bring about a more careful, nuanced narrative analysis of the Book of Mormon. And it is breathtaking that this is one of the major five books that truly broke my shelf. And, and I'm sure that Hardy did not uh, intend this type, this, this type of a reaction. But it is the reaction I had, and I will explain why, using Hardy's own materials, demonstrating without question that the scripture, the Book of Mormon, is simply someone else's philosophical outlook. And realistically, all I can do is pick and choose the highlights, some highlights that Hardy talked about in his book. And I, th I think it's really important to understand that he is attempting to get you persuaded that this is an absolutely complex, magnificent book that Joseph Smith could not have written, that it does have many narrative voices, etc. None of that's even my concern. What my concern is to highlight some of the ideas that Hardy shared concerning the three main editors in the Book of Mormon, Nephi, Mormon, and his son Moroni. So, to begin with, in the Book of Mormon, Nephi, Mormon, and Moroni are major characters themselves, and each has a distinctive life story. Each has a distinctive perspective, a set of concerns, a style, and a sensibility. If you will, a philosophy, a particular outlook. Furthermore, they have a sense of who their audience will be, and they deliberately shape their messages accordingly. They deliberately shape their messages according to their audiences. Now, isn't that what every good author does? Of course, but that is a philosophy of a man. The apparent attempt to weaken more or less take an anti-intellectual approach that the church has taken for decades now in order to lessen the influence of others' teachings besides their own. I mean, you know, church-approved reading materials only, right? Their attempt to do that by labeling it all as the philosophy of men is completely amateur, and it's wrong because everything we read, study, hear, or talk about is some kind of a philosophy. So there are no independent records or authenticated artifacts from Nephite civilization that would help us get an objective reality behind the narrative. Now that's a bit of refreshing honesty, isn't it? There's nothing outside the Book of Mormon, he says. He says that on, in the introduction. I'm just going to skip and pick and choose the highlights that I found pertinent to show the church's narrative is not entirely realistic 
in any manner. Whether Nephi operates as a fictional character or as an ancient prophet, he presents a life story with a particular point of view. There you have it. His philosophy. A theological vision, an agenda, Hardy says, and a characteristic style of writing. So the scriptures themselves are not above having an agenda. They are not just a free-flowing revelation from a spectacular inspired source and presenting us with objective reality. No, it's filtered through a human who has a philosophical point of view. Definitely. So far, this somewhat grim tale has emphasized Nephi's role in his family and especially his superiority to his two older brothers. I, you're not going to get the whole context in some of this. I'm just highlighting some of the points. If you want, you can get the book and read it. But Here is how Nephi presents the story of his interaction between him and Laman and Lemuel, his older brothers. They, them, those over there, they were unbelieving. He was faithful. Them, they, those over there, the others, they were terrified. Nephi had courage. This is in his account, right? From his point of view. They received an angelic rebuke. He enjoyed divine favor. They failed. He succeeded. Are you getting to see a pattern here? Yeah. This much is clear from Nephi's own version of these events, of course. But given the unexpected complications that arose in acquiring the plates when they went back to Jerusalem because they realized they were there, it would have been helpful to have followed up the story with some external explicit commendation of Nephi's actions, Hardy says. The one person who could have bestowed such validation, his father, Lehi, is silenced by the way Nephi retells, making this incident something more other than simplistic deduction fiction. Lehi does not speak the words that Nephi, the storyteller, was hoping to hear. We can imagine that a father might have had a lot to say upon the return of his sons, particularly when Nephi brought with him not only the brass plates, but also a bloody sword, a tale of a roadside killing, and a kidnapped, recently freed slave. But you notice Nephi doesn't say anything about any of that from Lehi's point of view. Interesting. We're informed that Lehi was happy to see them. Well, yeah. <laughs> and this seems to have come before the brothers had a chance to tell their story. Ah, what was Laman and Lemuel's version of events? Right? But we are not given a single word from Lehi to his sons. Instead, Nephi offers a prior conversation between his parents, Lehi and Sariah. Nephi often claims that he cannot include everything in his record, but it's difficult to avoid the suspicion that something is being suppressed here. Yeah, Nephi is writing faithful history, making himself look like the good guy and everybody else the bad guys right? A philosophy, if you will, a bias, a direct bias, because he and his brothers don't get along. 
Nephi as a narrator who is anxious for us to perceive him as spiritually superior to his brothers and in harmony with his father at all times. He omits the homecoming dialogue. We have no idea what was said. All we have is Nephi's biased comments, faith-promoting history whitewashed to the hilt in the Book of Mormon. So, the narrators not only show us what they want us to see, but they also tell us what to think about. Now, that sounds like today's brethren, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, but Hardy finds the exact same principle involved with the Book of Mormon story as well. When Nephi tells the story of his family, he touches upon many themes of considerable interest, for sure. The nature of revelation and prophecy, the origins of faith, and how faith can be passed to the next generation. He talks about conflict with families, immigration and new beginnings, physical survival, divine deliverance, reliving sacred drama, in this case, the biblical Joseph's conflicts with his brothers and the Israelites' exodus from Egypt, religious violence, the significance of books and records, for sure, God's foreknowledge and knowledge and power and the purpose of afflictions, but everything must be interpreted through the perspective of the narrator. That's critical. It's the narrator's philosophy that we are getting a picture of, not what actually happened. Nephi's favorite themes, of course, those that he'll include, and the primary techniques are not the same as Mormon and Moroni's either. And Joseph Smith's own opinions on such matter are perhaps still more difficult to ascertain. So later on, Hardy says, again, a refreshing bit of honesty from Hardy when he says, there are no independent verifiable sources for Nephite history that would shed light on specific details of the narrative. Indeed, there is not. Hardy is quite honest in that respect because he's doing a narrative approach to the Book of Mormon, which I found refreshing far more honest than anything I've ever heard from any general authority talk or conference talk, vastly more honest than any other apologetic book ever written, Hardy really does a good job that way. In the process, unfortunately, he undermines one of the main philosophies of the church itself. The dichotomy between, oh, their knowledge is lesser than ours because theirs is just philosophy, ours is revelation. That that's a false dichotomy altogether. Anyway, the narrators have deliberately, he says this on page 32 now. I'm not giving you the page numbers. I'm skipping throughout his book. You have to get the book to read it. The narrators have deliberately shaped their characterization to provoke certain reactions in the readers. And my goodness, isn't that what Russell M. Nelson does with all of his autobiographical, phony, made-up miracle stories of everyday things he goes through? Yeah, well, Nephi's doing the same thing. Fascinating, isn't it?
like the biblical story of Joseph, for instance. The, narr the narrative of Nephi and his brothers is both a family drama and it is the founding narrative for a nation, see? So the difference here is that Nephi tells the story himself, in retrospect even, and he certainly has a very clear agenda of what he wants us to believe about him. His goal is to show the tender mercies of the Lord are over all those whom he hath chosen because of their faith to make them mighty even unto the power of deliverance. 1 Nephi 1.20, right? To accomplish this, Nephi needs villains. Yeah. From whom deliverance is necessary. Preferably scoundrels who themselves exhibit a decided lack of faith. And guess who he finds? His older brothers. <laughs> Fascinating, isn't it? Well, in fact, his ambition is not simply to illustrate theological principles or outlines of the origins of political divisions. No, Nephi wants his readers to actually adopt his religious beliefs. And there was also a political dimension to his account, of course. Nephi carefully structured his writings to convince his own and even later generations that the Lord had selected him over his elder brethren to be Lehi's political and spiritual successor. See, that's his philosophy. That's his agenda, his bias. And that's the only voice we get in his record. Interesting. Nephi is faithful, and hence he is chosen by God. Laman and Lemuel, those, they are disbelieving and disobedient. Horror! Readers are not asked to analyze ambiguous situations or puzzle out moral implications, however, in Nephi's record. He gives it all to us clear-cut, in his favor, of course. Although there are occasional tense confrontations, there is never really any question as to how things will turn out because God will ensure that justice is done, again, a philosophy, right? That is, the righteous will be rewarded and the wicked punished, and yet watching the narrative unfold along entirely expected lines offers little of the drama we expect from literature. While it may be religiously satisfying, of course, to see life presented in terms of absolute good and evil, with the former reliably winning out, of course, this is a reduction of reality rather than a representation of it. It says that on page 33. That's one of the most powerful points Hardy makes. That's what broke my shelf. Even the scriptures are not an anchor for our own experience and life and choices and hopes and prayers and fears and joys because even they are written with a specific agenda which reduces reality that we 
on our individual experience can actually experience which will be, a, be beyond far what we read about in the scriptures for the reason that the church ironically outlines because even the scriptures are just the philosophical outlooks of one particular man or woman and his or her experience. Fascinating how that works, isn't it? In the Book of Mormon, Laman and Lemuel are stock characters, even caricatures. They don't develop much, and it seems that their sole mode of communication is complaining. <laughs> right? <laughs> this sort of didactism follows from Nephi's intentions, very important here, to make his points, he needs opponents who are strong enough to highlight the miraculous nature of his deliveries. Yes, it was a miracle! But reality may not be showing that at all. Nephi's agenda just wants us to see him being super-duper righteous and chosen of God, kind of like Russell M. Nelson is doing these days. Yeah. So if Laman and Lemuel are just basically flat, two-dimensional, entirely predictable characters, it is because Nephi has made them that way. By watching him at work, by shaping his narrative, highlighting certain features while downplaying others, we gradually come to see that Nephi is a much more complex, realistic, and even moving character. But I would add to that that he's much less obligating to follow or believe his philosophy as well. Hey neighbor, how you doing? Yeah, keep driving on, I'm making videos. So in the process of learning more about his character, hey, there's another neighbor. How you doing? Yeah, wave and drive on, please. I'm busy, can't you see that? No, don't stop. Thank you. Boy, some of these people. <laughs> Here is one of the important points that Nephi does so terribly against his brothers. He flattens them out by treating them as a single unit rather than as individuals. So similar questions might arise with regarding Sam, his younger brother, a rather passive ally in the family of of uh, in the family dynamics involved in all their characterizations. He's bland to the point of being a non-entity, really. Nephi never quotes a single word that Sam ever spoke. Was he really so self-effacing? <laughs> or has Nephi downplayed Sam's role in order to sharpen the main conflict between him and Laman and Lemuel? See, that's where Nephi's burr on his butt is, isn't it? The pattern of selective representation, deliberately so, in order to give us a false picture of the whole group, is even more pronounced in the case of the shadowy sons of Ishmael, who join the family in the desert and generally side with Laman and Lemuel, though they are so unindividualized that we don't even know their names. From the beginning, Nephi structures the narrative in such a way as to prevent us, the readers, from sympathizing with his older brothers. 
Nephi writing from the spiritual and political needs of 30 years later takes care to present his brothers in the worst possible light. But readers can also reconstruct the story from the perspective in which Laman and Lemuel's hesitancies are reasonable, their beliefs orthodox, and their actions faithful, at least to some extent, if we so desire. Whatever else they may have been, Laman and Lemuel appear to have been orthodox observant Jews. Nephi, who has a vested interest in revealing their moral shortcomings, he never accuses them of idolatry, false swearing, Sabbath-breaking, drunkenness, adultery, or ritual uncleanliness. Indeed, when he is describing their sins during the voyage to the New World that bring upon them the wrath of God, the worst thing he can come up with is rudeness. <laughs> That's hilarious, isn't it? Oh yeah, you're being rude. God is really pissed now. Nephi's like a moral prude, isn't he? It's kind of like the Mormons saying God will never allow the prophet to lead us astray when we figure that Nephi's doing just that. There is something to be said for belated obedience and reluctant faith, I suppose. It still is obedience and faith, he says, strong enough that Laman and Lemuel agree to sail over the open ocean in a ship that they themselves built, so there is that, right? This is not the case that Nephi makes, however. Instead, Nephi reduces the family's decade in the wilderness to a repetitive sequence of his brothers murmuring some 15 times, yet his own grieving for the hardness of their hearts, he wants us to think he has a, a care for them, right? And then they're being humbled either by persuasion or coercion or some divine manifestation. The only development he allows his brothers is negative. That is remarkable, isn't it? Very, very interesting. In other words, Nephi's story is simply his philosophy. And he mingled it with scripture. Isaiah, you know, <laughs> Jeremiah, and all of those. So, are we under any obligation to accept his view? I don't feel like I am, no. It's his philosophy, it's his idea. He wants to be the hero. He wants to be the successor of the grand patriarch. Yeah, he wants to be the righteous one and everyone else isn't nearly as good as him. So he, of course, receives the best revelations. He, of course, knows what choices to make and what choices to avoid, etc. And yet it's all just eyewash and window dressing. It's the philosophy of men mingled with scripture. He goes on to show the same thing with Mormon and Moroni. And I don't have time in this video to go through all the details. I, I thought that I had time, but there's so much. The one thing that is truly astonishing here, however, is the one I'm going to share with Moroni. And this one got my goat. This one really blew it out for me. Moroni, as editor, as the final editor, 
He says this on page 235. If you can, get his book and read it. It's amazing because it'll blow your mind what Moroni does. When Moroni edited the Jaredite record, he deliberately highlighted connections with the Nephites and Lamanites, and he minimized the differences. <laughs> That's perfect Mormonism and apologetics, isn't it? Woohoo! There is another striking feature to the Book of Ether, however, and whether it is ultimately ascribed to Joseph Smith or Moroni, it reflects an aspect of the Jaredite culture that the previous narrator, Mormon, in this case, would have found truly problematic. A reason he could not simply have appended Mosiah's translation of the 24 plates to his own abridgment in history. A close reading of Ether suggests that Jaredite culture was almost entirely non-Christian. Consequently, it is not surprising that Mormon was at a loss as to how to integrate their story into his own account, which was obviously designed to testify of Jesus and his promises. Again, Mormon's philosophy. The only reason he edited it is to put that idea into it. Yeah? Here Moroni comes to the rescue of Mormon. With fewer historiographical qualms than his father, Moroni does something that Mormon either could not do or would not do. In a startling act of literary appropriation, Moroni Christianizes the Jaredite record. In other words, his particular philosophy and falsifying the truth. Amazing. So the idea that the Jaredites did not know about Jesus will come as a surprise to most Latter-day Saints. At first glance, the Jaredite story does not seem all that different from the rest of what we read elsewhere in the Book of Mormon. Christ is mentioned regularly and reverently. Yet if one goes through the Book of Ether with a red pencil and differentiates Moroni's editorial narrative comments from his paraphrase of the 24 plates, it would soon become obvious that with a single exception only, specific references to Jesus Christ appear only in Moroni's editorial comments. Jesus wasn't in the Jaredite's culture. In other words, this destroys my trust in Moroni. He will change the record to make it more Christian when the Jaredites weren't Christian. And he has no right, this is my comment, he has no right to add his theology to another ancient record and make it their theology without them even knowing it or agreeing with it. Finally, perhaps no theme was as important to the Book of Mormon narrators as demonstrating the universality of the Christian religion, showing that prophets could guide the faithful in every land and era, even before Jesus Christ, to believe in Christ and accept his salvation. But I add again, this is a philosophy of these narrators. The challenge for Moroni, then, was to Christianize Ether's book, making it appear more theologically consistent with his father's history than it actually was. 
He does this by working an additional 18 references to Christ's name in his comments on the Jaredite record. In other words, Moroni flat out changes history and lies in order to promote Christianity, his philosophy. Now here is the deepest irony of all. Because of what Hardy has demonstrated in the narrative with the narrator's interaction with the ancient records, I can't trust anything they say. Because they're obviously biased, full of their own philosophy and theology, and they want to stamp that onto the record in order to make us believe that that, their philosophy, was the truth of history. And that's not true. I mean, they act like modern Mormons, don't they? Russell Nelson, with all his autobiographical writings, showing how everything he does from tying his shoelaces to eating a meal is miraculous, right? Everything involves Jesus helping him and him alone, you know, because he's the prophet, he's the leader, he's the chosen. They did it anciently, they do it today. But is it reality? That's the question. And the answer is no. That's what Mormonism is hiding from us. Here's the deep irony. I can grant the entire Joseph Smith story as being historically valid and true for the sake of the argument. I don't grant it, but I can. I can grant that he told everything true about Moroni, the gold plates, the seer stones, the translation of the stone in the hat, the witnesses, all of that. I can grant all of that to Joseph Smith, but I still won't believe the Book of Mormon because the main editors, Nephi, Mormon, and Moroni, have their own philosophy, and they deliberately skew the record, they twist the facts, they change the history, they add to what was not there, they take away from what was there in order for us to perceive their philosophy. So the irony that Mormonism wants to separate the philosophy of man from their own inspired utterances, beginning with the supposed inspired utterances of the scripture, is pure baloney. That's what they're hiding from us. I wouldn't believe the Book of Mormon if absolutely all of it was historically valid. For those reasons. Because they cheat with the truth. Why does that always have to be so? Why? I just don't grasp it. <laughs> you, you can't allow a non-Christian nation to have its own form of spirituality and truth. No, you have to stamp your religion onto it in order to make it valid. And yet your religion is a derivative religion also. Christianity is not unique and original. It simply adapted the earlier pagan mystery religions of Greece, Iran, Mesopotamia, Babylon, etc. They just changed the names of the deities and adapted all their festivals and and uh, worship modes, and their sacraments, etc. Nothing in the New Testament is original. Jesus is not unique. But does he have to be? No, of course not. That was the philosophy of the Christian church that destroyed all the other religions in order to make it number one. 
the same thing Moroni is doing with the Book of Ether. Oh, well, it's pagan? No, that can't work. Let's Christianize it. That's bullshit history. That is immoral. And yet, nobody seems to have any compunction about doing it. Today, in Mormonism, with their own history, or anyone else's, or even anciently, with the Mormon people. That's ironic. But that's what we find. And now you know why Grant Hardy broke my shelf. So thanks for watching the Backyard Professor videos. Remember, be good, do well, have fun, be happy, make lots of friends. And I'm really sincerely serious. It's time to start loving others as fellow human beings. We're not superior to anyone else. Stop thinking so egotistically and let's get along. Let's realize we're in this together and we can do it together. And it's much more fun to do it with friends than instead of enemies, which we ignore Jesus' teachings, whom we love to pretend we worship, by loving our enemies. Well... Would you crucify Jesus again if he came back? I'm afraid many would. That's how far askew we are of our common, basic, decent humanity. Let's pull it back together and get going, man. Life is good. Life is great. Make it that way. Smile. Be happy. Be useful. Don't beat yourself up because you fall short. We all fall short. So, Anyway, now I'm preaching. So, I will see you guys in the next Backyard Professor videos.